And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's continue in our worship now as we turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, and I can't think of a better sermon on Resurrection Sunday than Paul's sermon before the Areopagus, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 17, and in the sovereign timing of the Lord, we have the sermon and beginning in verse 22 and going to, uh, we'll go to the end of the chapter. We're going to go from 16 to the end of the chapter, but for our reading, we're going to read this sermon here. So Acts 17, verse 22. This is God's word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. As he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold and silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but... Some men joined them and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Our Heavenly Father, we give you all praise, all glory, all honor, all majesty for what's been done for us through Christ. And we give you all praise, all glory, all majesty, all honor for giving us the tremendous privilege of knowing your word, of knowing your son, knowing your gospel, knowing of your great resurrection. We give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you will, I'd ask you to look back with me at a phrase found in verse 30, this word ignorance. Ignorance. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Let me ask the 
the true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Do you ever think back to the time in your life when you didn't believe? Maybe you're here this morning, you don't remember such a time. Maybe you've always had a strong faith, and if, if that's the case, I'd say praise the Lord. But for those who do remember your, pre, your life pre-conversion, do you ever go back to think what that life was like? Uh, not necessarily your individual actions, but your entire existence and experience in this life before the Lord saved you by his grace. I often think about my life uh, before Christ, and every time I do, there's both this sense of relief and fear. There's a grateful assurance that I've been declared, that I've been delivered and uh, declared forgiven by the Lord, but there's also this lingering feeling of terror and dread and What frightens me the most is not really the sins that I committed or the just penalties that I deserve for willingly transgressing his holy law, though that's terrifying as well. But what frightens me most and causes me the most anxiety when I look back is the realization that I was actually walking around this world ignorant to the reality that I was created and therefore that I have a creator. I I was walking around uh, life on this earth ignorant or or lacking knowledge, unaware of who my creator was, what he was like, what he has done for his children. I was walking around, around this planet like so many today, so many before us, and I was just taking other people at their word in matters related to monumentally significant realities of life on this earth and of the one who gave it. I was just taking the word of people who were in that same ignorant condition as I was. And that terrifies me. It terrifies me that I could have died, easily died, remaining in that state of ignorance had it not been for the sovereign grace and mercy of our Lord. In our text today, we're going to look at a people who were living in that state of ignorance. They were entrenched in ignorance, but they were not unlearned people. And in fact, they were a people who, by humanistic and societal standards, were among the most intellectually gifted and knowledgeable people in the history of the world, a people who were and are still admired and revered today, still studied and examined today, still imitated by many today. They're an ancient people who, even today, have entire curriculums and minors and majors and whole departments and faculties based upon their insights and prof- profundity of thought. Now, people who are still being venerated and exalted by our so-called fine educational institutes. And yet, knowing what we Christians know to be truth, knowing what the one true living God has chosen to graciously reveal to us in his word, which tells us of his righteous character, And works, it's these same men and women, along with those who have chosen to follow them, will actually prove to be the biggest fools when it's all said and done. They were fools. And they are fools. Because they are ignorant to the most basic, elemental, fundamental truths of human existence. And that's what we're going to look at today. Divine wisdom versus the wisdom of the world. And ultimately, we're going to see how God makes foolish 
the wisdom of this world. How God doth despise the worldly wise. I've always wanted to use doth in a title. Here we are. It's everything I thought it would be. Please look with me again at verse 16. Uh, Point one in your outline. Luke begins right where we left off last week by saying, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So again, Paul was traveling throughout the whole region. He was going through Macedonia and Achaia, reasoning in the synagogues, preaching and teaching that Jesus was the Christ. Last week, we saw him in Thessalonica. Then he went over to Berea, and he was basically run out of town. When Luke says that the brothers immediately sent him off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, which was about 222 miles south. And after receiving a, a command from, for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So here is Paul waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens. But what does he do? Is he just hanging out in his hotel room and waiting for him? Is he catching up on some sleep? Is he getting a little sauna, maybe a dip in the hot tub? No, he goes right out into the city. Verse 17, he says, uh, Luke says he does what he always did. He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he was out on the town. He was out in the streets. He was in the marketplace where things were happening, where things were going down. And he was reasoning with people, not just where he felt comfortable, not just back at the synagogue, but he was in the main square. He was out and among the pagans. And note again the wording in verse 16. As he was in this city and among these people, Luke said his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was stimulated. It was excited to action, but it was stimulated in the negative sense, meaning his spirit was irritated. It was angered. It was even provoked to wrath. He wasn't comfortable there. He wasn't comfortable in this environment. Why not? Because it was a dark city. It was a tremendously dark and depraved city because Luke says it was full of idols full of statues and monuments and shrines dedicated to these intellectual elites of the past along with the false gods they worshipped. Protonius said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. It was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. In fact, Pliny said that in the time of Nero... Athens had over 30,000 public statues besides countless private altars in the homes. This was a city rampant with idol worship, Uh, a plethora, a pantheon of gods, 30,000 public statues. Now, I don't know why I got so stuck on this. I think it's because I read how big Athens was. It was 165 square miles. Then I looked up how big Denver was. Just Denver, just the city, not the surrounding counties, 153 square miles, okay? Then, just out of curiosity, I looked up how many city blocks were in a square mile. I just had to know. It said it could be anywhere from 10 to 16 blocks east to west. So then I thought, well, how many blocks are in 153 square miles of the city of Denver? By this time, my head started to hurt to the point where even starting to enter the question into Google, 
I, I, I just couldn't do it. It was confusing for me. So I did the right thing, and I sent Bill Rask a text. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know Bill Rask, he's not here this morning, so I feel a little liberty to talk about him. <coughs> he's a fine brother in the Lord, but he's also a retired engineer. So I thought... So I thought, no doubt he has some graph paper and a number two pencil just sitting right beside him at this very moment, just waiting for an opportunity like this. And I said, hi, Bill. Say a city is 153 square miles. There are, we're an average of 16 blocks east to west. How many total blocks would there be in the city? And Bill says, well, <coughs> in the city of Denver, there's an average of 163,000 square feet or 3.75 acres per block, which means there are 98,000 square acres in Denver. Now, if you divide that by 3.75 per block, you get about 26,000 blocks. Okay? I said, well, that sounds good to me. Thank you. <laughs> now, if Pliny were correct in his estimate that there were as many as 30,000 public statues in Athens during the time of Nero... And if Bill is correct, that there are about 26,000 blocks in a 153-square-mile radius, minus the parks, minus any sprawling businesses, by the way, that means you could put at least one idolatrous statue at the end of each and every single block in the city of Denver. And that would be the equivalent of what Paul was witnessing here in this dark and depraved intellectual capital of the world. Think about that as you drive out of here. Think about a big statue of Zeus as you pull up to Sheridan. Just think about it. That's why his spirit was provoked within him. He knew the truth. And he knew these statues did not represent the truth. Now, being a man of God, he knew these things were an affront to God. Therefore, they were an affront to him as well. His spirit was provoked, it was irritated, even grieved as he understood the eternal weight, the monumental ramifications and consequences that awaited those who bowed down to these statues and worshipped them every day. The city was full of idols, Luke says. And parts, uh, Paul's heart was full of lamentation. So, look at verse 17. So, he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. I love that so there, okay? Notice it doesn't say his spirit was so provoked by these idols that he went back to the hotel and covered himself in sackcloth and, sackcloth and asses. Sackcloth and ashes. I knew that was going to be a tough one. He didn't go back to his, his hotel and, and cover himself with sackcloth and ashes. He didn't just sit in the corner in the fetal position rocking back and forth because of the depravity of the world. It didn't say that he tucked tail and ran back to some remote monastery in the woods or off to some island here. It says his spirit was provoked because of these idols. So he went out. He reasoned with the people. He, he reasoned with the people of the city, just like he did in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Now, we have our fair share of idols in this city, don't we? They might not be built of wood or stone and on every block, but we have many, many idols. Our cities today are full of idols. Money, 
fame, power, sports, entertainment, social media, our cell phones, even seemingly good things, work, leisure, family, friends, relationships, art, music, food. All very easy can be exalted to the place of prominence in our hearts and in our lives. May it not be so for us, but (coughs) may we not live in ignorance to the reality that these things dominate our culture. Therefore, may we be so bold as Paul is here as we head out into this idolatrous city, never shrinking back from declaring what we know to be true. Paul was very bold, but Uh, This boldness, of course, drew some attention. As Luke says in verse 18, some of the Epicureans and Stoics, these philosophers who were really the intellectuals among intellectuals, conversed with him. The Epicureans, they were atheists. They denied God's existence. They denied life after death. They were materialists. They felt this life was all there was, so they got everything they could out of it. They were the original, if it feels good, do it crowd. One commentator said they felt that pleasure was the highest virtue and that pain was the opposite. Their motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Stoics, on the other hand, were followers of the philosopher Zeno and believed that everything was God. He's not some separate entity or being, but he's in everything. He's in rocks and grass and animals, every material thing, that chair right there for example. He's everywhere. These were the original uh, New Agers. These were the 5th century BC New Agers. And the Stoics' attitude towards life was one of ultimate resignation. They prided themselves on their ability to take whatever came. Their motto in terms, uh, in modern terms, was grin and bear it. Commentator said they urged moderation Don't get over-emotional either about tragedy or happiness. Apathy was regarded as the highest virtue of life. And Luke says, these guys begin to converse with the Apostle Paul here in the marketplace. And notice what some of them said about Paul in verse 18. Some of them asked, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, interestingly... This word for babbler here is literally translated seed picker. Okay, this was a a derogatory term used by the intellectuals when they wanted to demean folks by comparing them to gutter birds. The sparrows who would hop around the streets or the gutters picking up seeds and crumbs and other pieces of food. They were seed pickers. Have you ever been called a seed picker? I've never been called a seed picker. That's the first time I ever heard of it. They had all kinds of names for people like this. For example, Greeks called non-Greeks barbarians because when they talked, it sounded like this, bar, 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 bar. Barbarians. Here they said of Paul, he's a seed picker. He, He picks little tidbits of information within various philosophical systems. Then he creates his own new philosophy based on those tidbits. He spews them out all over the marketplace as if they were true, as if they were factual. That's what some said Paul was guilty of doing in the marketplace. Others in verse 18 said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus 
and the resurrection, a resurrection that almost none of their great philosophers ascribe to it in that city. Not Pericles, not Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, none of them taught what Paul was teaching here. Why not? Because they lived out their lives in ignorance to this reality. They were consumed with theory and the hypothetical. So Luke writes, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was both uh, a geographical location within Athens. It's also known as Mars Hill. And it was a group of the wisest men in the city, the wisest council in the land. And whether these guys brought Paul forcibly or they asked him to come along willingly, we don't know. But they brought him to this hill and they brought him before this council of men and they asked him in verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And that verse 21, by the way, that's way of Luke's saying, that's Luke's way of saying, let me tell you who the real seed pickers of this city were. They're always looking for something new. These guys were the ones chirping about and listening to new theories, not Paul. Paul loved to tell the old, old story. Uh, Job, David, Daniel, Hosea, Isaiah all spoke about the resurrection. So here Paul preaches it boldly. He tells the old, old story. Then he told of Jesus and his glory. And by the grace of God, he's given this golden opportunity to educate the ignorant. He's got the listening ears of the best this world has to offer. How would they respond to what Paul is about to say here? How will you respond to what Paul is about to say here? He opens his mouth and he begins this sermon with these words. Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, in that very statement, right there in verse 23, we see the basis for, for Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which, by the way, was only about 50 miles west of Athens. Think about this passage next time you hear the Ivy League intellectual elites of our day, the, the global elite, the social elite, the political elite, even the religious elite spewing their new philosophies and theories, spewing their empty rhetoric in empty words, think about what he told the church in Corinth, so close to Athens. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. And that's right. Paul gets that from Isaiah chapter 19, verse 12, as God destroys the wisdom of these wise Athenians. Where, the Lord says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? And Paul asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How did he make them foolish? 
Why are they foolish? Because amidst their own self-righteousness, their pretentious, self-righteous, self-congratulatory, arrogant haughtiness and pop, the pomp they have neglected to comprehend the most basic foundational truths about the world's existence, namely that both the world and its inhabitants come from him. Who? The very same God who Paul proclaims here on the Areopagus. And he takes them back to the basics, profound truths to be sure, but he goes back to the foundations, almost speaking to them like little children. First he says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, all these different gods, I found an altar with this description, inscription to an unknown God. In other words, you don't even know what you believe. You don't even know who you believe in or why you believe. You're just making this up as you go along. And that's right. In fact, this is fascinating. Apparently, some 600 years before Paul stood here in Athens, these statues were already all over the place, including uh, these altars to unknown gods. You want to know how they got there? Well, there was this great pestilence throughout the whole land. It was killing off vast numbers in the population to the point where the leader said, what in the world are we going to do here? Our gods, they must be mad at us, but they don't seem to be hearing our cries for help or accepting our sacrifices, so they just kept adding gods, creating gods and trying to appease these made-up gods so that the carnage, carnage may stop. Finally, they got so desperate that they consulted with the oracle of Delphi, an order of priestesses who were thought to have uh, counseled Apollo himself. And apparently this oracle told them to send a ship to Crete to ask for the help of a poet named Epimenides. Now listen to a quote from one of the leading historians of this time, okay? Epimenides agreed to help the Athenians. He came to Athens and brought some sheep to the Areopagus. Same place Paul is preaching here. Anyhow, he released these sheep throughout the entire city and allowed allowed them to go wherever they pleased. And wherever a sheep laid down, Epimenides had marked the spot so that these sacrifices could be made to the unknown local divinity there. The historical records say, quote, Epimenides' remedy worked. Athens was delivered from its scourge. Thus, from that day onward, visitors to Athens would find altars to unknown God around the city, unquote. The wisdom of the world, let's let the animals determine our fate. Delivered from scourge, sure, maybe in the temporal sense, but then they would go on for centuries seeing generation after generation exalting and offering sacrifices to non-existent, unknown deities, all based upon where some, some sheep felt was a good place to lay down and take a nap. But Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, you don't know God. Let's be honest with ourselves here. You don't really know any of these gods. Zeus, Apollos, they were uh, figments of some guy's imaginations, and you've devoted yourselves to them fully. Just like folks do today, right? But then he gives them a lesson in basic theology. Okay, he says, This pantheon of gods you guys have created here, 
Not a one of them exists. There is only one God, one true God. Notice in verse 24, he says, the God. Just one. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. He made it. He fashioned it. He spoke it into existence by the very word of his power. And he has revealed himself through his creation. This is general revelation. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 1 when he said, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The stars, the moon, the sun, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. This is general revelation. Everyone can see it. We can ex- experience it or or hear it, or walk up to a thousand-ton boulder and say, well, how did this get here? I certainly didn't make it. Paul says he made the world, which means he made everything in the world, right? All things that inhabit the earth have their place on the earth. All things that creep and crawl and walk upon this earth, including you and me and these Athenians. Now, in the light of that, Do you think we should attempt to or even have the ability to put God, the same all-powerful, all-infinite God, into a box of wood or stone? No, Paul says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. In other words, we, small and in comparison really insignificant creatures, can in no way, shape, or form contain the Creator. Now, there's one exception to this, of course, and that's the believing man or woman's body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? But you see, that was done through the power and the decree of God. It's in no way comparable to human beings creating a little hut or a temple, or a mosque, or a pagoda, or a church building, and say God dwells within it. If God chooses to reveal himself uh, as indwelling a place in the physical sense, whether that be in a tabernacle or a temple, then he can. He has the right to do as he pleases. But the God, the only true God, does not live in temples made by men. He said this himself, Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you, have built, that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All of these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. And, and we can see this displayed marvelous, marvelously throughout uh, general revelation in his creation. But there's another type of revelation, that's special revelation. It's a supernatural communication where God displays his own righteous character. This, this can be through oral communication, like through the prophets or the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it can be through written communication like we're looking at this morning, like the writer of Hebrews tells us. 
He not only created all things by the word of his power, but he upholds all things by the word of his power. We know that because we read it in special revelation. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 25. The one true God is both creator and sustainer. The one true God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. For in him we live and move and breathe. Of course we do. He created us. Therefore, we are totally dependent upon him for everything in this life. If you're breathing right now, if your heart is beating at this moment, and I, I hope it is, I know those burritos were good, but... It's because he's sustaining you. He's giving you that breath. He's allowing your heart to be again. He created us. Therefore, we are totally dependent on him for everything in this life. And he's dependent upon us for nothing. Nothing. In fact, he's not dependent upon any other source outside of himself for anything at all. If he was dependent in any way, shape, or form on any source outside of himself for anything at all, then whatever that source was would be God. But he's not. He's totally independent. It's called the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Meaning, contrary to popular belief, he doesn't need us. He wasn't lonely, so he created us. He he doesn't need us for anything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. After all, he's the one who said to his people, Israel, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. I, I can't. A cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. The the world and its fullness are mine. He's saying to this people, Israel, why do you religious folks puff yourself up with pride by killing animals that I made? Why do you boast in your good works as though they originated with you? as if you weren't prepared to walk in them beforehand. Now here in Athens, you've got all these sheep running around all over the place in hopes of sacrificing them to a God who doesn't even exist. God would say, those are my sheep. You just killed the perfectly good sheep. It was mine. Now you're just insulting me. It was ignorance on full display. They were ignorant. They didn't know, did they? They didn't know God. They only knew what other ignorant people told them was true. And they bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. Now here's what's so great about this. Paul's point here is this. You can know the one true God. You can. He is all-powerful, incomprehensible to his fullest extent, to be sure, but he is knowable. You guys can know him, and Paul wanted them to know. 
just like we should want folks to know, right? He's worthy of their praise as well as ours, right? That's, that's why we're here to tell him. You can know God. And in fact, he emphasizes this truth starting in verse 26. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Wait a second now. You mean this all powerful, all wise, all infinite and independent, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth says that we can know him and he wants us to know him as he knows us? Answer, yes. Again, he said it himself, thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand, understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He delights when his creatures know him. Paul says so much so that he sovereignly orchestrated, predetermined where would we, be, we would be born, to whom we would be born, and what time period we would all be born in, so that we might feel for him, seek after him, and find him. Think about that as you listen to my voice this morning. He gave you your life he sustains your life. He sovereignly orchestrated every single event and every single detail of your life to bring you right here to this very place at this very moment to hear of his attributes and divine nature. Do you realize that? Amen. He could have put you anywhere in the world in any time period of the world, but here you are hearing about his steadfast love, his justice, and his righteousness. Paul says to these men and women in the Areopagus, he's actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we, li we live and move and have our being. Again, of course we do. He made us. We're totally dependent on him. Then Paul hits him right between the eyes as he says this, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And that's true, I read them. Epimenides, again, Eratus said that. But then God's offspring, who being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Come on, you guys. What kind of gods are we worshiping here? What kind of gods are you worshiping? You made these things with your own hands. The true God creates. He is not created. He sustains. He determines. And you can know him. Then the tone shifts in verse 30, okay? Look at this. He says, listen, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. In other words, he says, you are ignorant. 
You are ignorant. You've been ignorant your whole life, but you don't have to, as Peter says, remain ignorant. You don't have to be conformed to the passions of your ignorance. You can be delivered. You can be set free. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from the things that provoke the spirit of Paul that kindles the anger of God. Turn from these idols and these statues and the the rituals and the customs, the self-worship. Then turn back to your creator by faith. Turn from them and turn to the living God. Why? Well, verse 31 says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And you say, wow, 40 minutes in, we're just now getting to the resurrection. (laughs) I must have forgotten what day it was. No, I didn't forget what day it was. It's the first day of the week. We celebrate the resurrection here as a congregation every Sunday. This is the 48th sermon in our study of Acts thus far. We've preached about the resurrection in every one of them. We just happen to get burritos this morning. (laughs) Sing Christ arose at the end, right? Some of the perks. Anyhow, look again at Paul's words in verse 31. He has fixed a day for worldwide judgment. Not just individual judgment for those who don't believe, but global judgment. This is serious. Do you know the last time that God fixed a day for global judgment? For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth, killing every living thing on the earth, men, women, children, animals, everything, except for who was on that ark with Noah and his family. Why? Because he saw the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then he told Noah, you know what? I'm not going to do that again. Do what? Judge the earth? Kill the inhabitants of the earth? Inflict his righteous wrath and indignation upon the people of this earth? Oh no, he's going to do that again. He just said he wouldn't do it, do it with water. But that was a long time ago, right? Right? I mean, that was thousands of years before Paul. Here we are 2,000 years later. But the Lord has fixed a day. A day is coming where he will judge the earth for its idolatry, for, for our sinning against him, for not living up to his standards and claiming ignorance will not spare them. They won't just say, I didn't know, because you did know. They won't spare you on that day, not individually or globally. But what changed? Why did he overlook ignorance before? Well, here's the bad news for the ignorant and unbelieving world. He expects perfection. He will judge the world in righteousness and by the very standard of human righteousness, which is his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent the standard of righteousness into this world that he created, and he expects us to be perfect. 
just as he is perfect. But, but this righteousness is a righteousness that we can never attain on our own. Therefore, we have to place our trust in him. We have to place our trust in the one who was righteous. We have to depend on his righteousness in order to stand before this infinitely holy and just God. But the good news is, the really, really good news is that he affords us the opportunity to do so now. The one true God, the creator and sustainer, the sovereign, authoritative God of the heavens and the earth appointed a man named Jesus whom he sent into this world to be born of a virgin. He had no earthly father, which means he didn't inherit a sinful nature like all of us did. He was born of a virgin. He he was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he was perfect. He was perfectly righteous because he was God incarnate. He was God in human form. He was both fully God or truly God and truly man. Because he was truly man, he was born under the law. But because he was perfect, he was able to keep that law in its entirety with no deviation from the right to the left. Yet it was the will of the Father to crush his son. It was the will of the same noble God to crush his son from from the very foundations of the world. He had a perfect plan to offer his son up as, as a sacrifice to all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation and reconciliation, for forgiveness of sin, and for salvation from his righteous wrath. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. As, as he took the place of and bore the penalty for sin of all the men and the women he has called to himself, he suffered and died in their place. But God raised him from the dead. He came out of that tomb three days later, a risen, living, triumphant Savior, which vindicated Christ, demonstrating that his sacrifice was sufficient and guaranteed that all who believe in him would be raised to eternal life as well. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what sets us apart from every other system of belief in all the world. Paul says if Christ had not been raised, we would still be in our sin. We would still be under the condemnation of this infinitely holy God, but he was raised. He has risen. He is alive. And he is now, even now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who belong to him, if they would but seek him, feel their way toward him, if they would but hear the voice of their good shepherd, if they would but come to him, if they would but believe his gospel, if they would but turn from their wickedness, Turn from this world, turn to their creator by his grace alone. If they would but believe in his good news, he would no longer look at them as vile, wretched sinners deserving of his wrath, but he would look at them. He would look at you as he does his only son. He would raise you to new life, new life on this earth, new life, eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth if you would but believe in him, if you would uh, 
Turn from your sin. Call upon his name alone for salvation. You know, it's been well said. Jesus Christ is either your savior or your sentencer. He's either your justifier or he's your judge. And your response, even today, will only cement this reality just as it did for these folks back in Athens 2,000 years earlier. Now look at the response from some of these Athenians. Ask yourself which might describe your own response to the truths that he's revealed to you this morning. Luke says, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we, were, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. <clears throat> Which one are you this morning? Will you mock? Will you scoff? Will you continue to spurn your Creator while hanging on the every word of other sinful men and women who ignorantly strut about this earth? Or will you put it off? Will you say, maybe next week, maybe next year when I come get burritos? Willingly choosing to remain in this state of ignorance for another season. I hope that's not the case for you this morning. I, I trust that you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's, he's the only way to the Father. I pray that you will hear the call of your Lord this morning, that by his grace alone you will believe the testimony of his word, that you will follow him, that you will spend the rest of your days on this earth and all of your eternity thereafter praising his holy name for what's been done for you through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Amen? Amen. Amen.